Well, good morning, church and friends and guests and online folks, too. Uh, the Lord be with you. Also, congratulations on being here on time. Some of you may have arrived a half an hour early for the earlier service, and you had a, a little extra time of prelude in preparation for this worship service. And then also, if you see some folks coming in today at 10.30, just as this service is ending, be sure to give them a nice fellowship high five and lots of love, because they'll have kind of missed our gathering this morning. The, the, the perk of, of doing this together this morning is that we get to gather together as one church family in one worship service, worshiping the one God, one faith, one baptism, and we get to do this together. Uh, thanks be to God for that. According to our national calendar, this is, of course, the weekend of the 4th of July, a weekend of celebration, and we have much to be thankful for uh, for this nation and for this land in which we live. According to another calendar, the church calendar, uh, this is ordinary time, just ordinary time of life in God's world. And so we live each day as dual citizens, if you will, uh, afoot in each world, uh, citizens of the kingdom of God and citizens of a nation uh, in God's world. And yet every Sunday, and especially this one, we have the opportunity to reassess and reaffirm our allegiances and even our ultimate allegiances. And so I want to invite you to hear some words from the book that we love as our call to worship this morning. Would you please stand with me? These words come to us from Psalm 95, where it says this. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him too. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Let's sing together.
Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, today we remember that you spoke the cosmos into being. Lights and land and fish and birds and plants and animals, sun, moon, and stars, called into being by your very word. But humanity you form not by words, but by your very hands, purposed to walk in joyful friendship with you so that we could steward your creation according to your will. In the image of God, you made us so that we would know and love you, and out of that knowledge and love that we might obtain the wisdom to bring the flourishing of creation and all therein. But humanity rejected your gracious invitation. We went our own way and chose our own path, and now creation groans in agony because of the aimlessness, the futility, the destruction that we have wrought. But today, we also remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in whom the groanings of creation have been answered, in whom the world is being set right, in whom everything is being renewed. And it is this Christ who calls us to our first and primary vocation as faithful followers of Jesus, who develop other faithful followers of Jesus. We confess that we often allow our many roles and duties to supersede this primary vocation, that rather than growing in grace as faithful followers of Jesus, rather than developing other faithful followers of Jesus, rather than cooperating with the work of the Spirit in and through us, we sometimes go our own way and choose our own paths. Like Martha, we become busy with so many things when the primary vocation before us is to sit at your feet in all of life. So forgive us, Lord, for the prayers not uttered, 
for the hymns not sung, for the scriptures not studied, for the devotions not read, for the character not demonstrated, for the invitations not extended, for the relationships not formed, for the friendships not mended, for the opportunities not taken, for the encouraging words not offered, for the service not rendered, for the grace not extended, and for the good news not proclaimed. We confess that we need you to truly bring about flourishing in our families, and in our neighborhoods, and in our communities, and that without you, we are less faithful stewards of our roles and duties and work, and ultimately less compelling witnesses of the God who loved us into being. Help us to know you, and to love you, and to wisely follow you in all of life. Help us to persevere in the race before us, to grow in grace day by day, that we might glorify you today, tomorrow, and into eternity. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is because of the life, the death, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we have peace with God and with one another. Therefore, let us extend the peace to one another um, as you feel comfortable. You may have to stand to do that. <laughs> Well, friends, as you make your way back to your seats, you may be seated, and this is for the people online as well. I invite you to turn to the person nearby you and simply say, I am so glad that you're here this morning. Well done. I am so glad that you are here this morning. Glad to be together in worship this morning. My name is Ross Dealman, one of the pastors here, and together our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. We are eager to live into that mission together, and if you are new among us, uh, if you've been around a bit and would like to make yourself known, or even if you are just visiting uh, and otherwise out of town, uh, we, we'd love to learn more about you and hear your story and uh, celebrate uh, even just together this morning. Uh, we have connection cards. You can make yourself known or otherwise we'll have some time for greeting after this service and some uh, time to catch up with one another. We're eager to do so with you. One of the uh, things I mentioned in our call to worship is that our gatherings uh, can also be acts of allegiance, this gathering of worship that we have. And I want to remind you that in our life together as a congregation, we have shifted into a new fiscal year. As of Jan uh, July 1, we have wrapped up our past fiscal year and stepped into a new one and want to simply celebrate with you God's faithfulness and your generosity uh, in the year past. Uh, numbers are still being tallied for that, uh, but we are grateful for the journey we've had together and recognize that uh, on this Sunday, we're the first Sunday in, into a new fiscal year where we are uh, looking at our ministry spending plan that we have agreed together congregationally that God is leading us into both ministry and mission. And we are excited about what's coming ahead 
And our giving towards this kind of thing is in fact another act of our allegiance to God, whereby our checkbook tells the stories of our priorities and we give thanks for the opportunity to give and to serve and to love together here through Fellowship Church and beyond. In this new year, we also have some news to share of an exciting new person joining our staff. Uh, Next week, we will celebrate and say thank you to Kathy uh, Hamilton, who has been our care coordinator for the last few years, and she has done a fantastic job uh, with her retirement. We've been looking for her replacement. And Pat Vorpagel, who is sitting over on this side, she's also with a photo uh, and a little uh, paragraph in the back of your bulletin. Pat Vorpagel has agreed to join us and to serve in this capacity, and we are thrilled for her to join our team. She has been known around here for quite a while. You might recognize her name. She has been deeply in prayer for many of you for years. She has been our prayer coordinator anyways and, uh, and comes alongside our staff now Uh, to coordinate care. Uh, And she has a wonderful background in nursing, uh, a spiritual director, and so many gifts that we are excited that you will get to know all the more uh, in the weeks and months and years to come. Would you please just celebrate her? And you'll likely be getting to know her more and more in the future. Uh, One last thing, as we have our one united service of worship this morning, the great opportunity is that we get to gather for refreshments afterwards for cookies and coffee, a little extended time out in the atrium. You're invited uh, to stay as long as you'd like and join together uh, with one another in that space. Let's continue in worship together.
That is indeed is our prayer, that the light of Christ might shine on us. We continue this morning in our summer worship series entitled, A Questionable Life. We're going to look at one of the more peculiar questions in our series, I would argue, and maybe one of the more peculiar questions in all of Scripture, and it comes to us this morning from Jeremiah chapter 12. It's a question that God seems to ask Jeremiah. Before we get to it, though, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that is revealed to us in the created order and in Scripture. And we pray that now as we focus our attention on your good book, that we might be transformed by your spirit, that your spirit might give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you might be saying to us so that we might become indeed more faithful followers of you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Jeremiah begins, You will be in the right, O Lord, when I lay charges against you, but let me put my case before you. Why does the way of the guilty prosper? Why do all the treacherous or wicked thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and bring forth fruit. You are near in their mouths, yet far from their hearts. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and you test me. My heart is with you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the wickedness of those who live in it? The animals and the birds are swept away and because people have said, he is blind to our ways. If you have raced with runners and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? This is the word of the Lord. How will you compete with horses? Can you run with the horses? You know, most of the series, we're asking some deep and existential questions, you might say. What is truth? Who is your neighbor? Where are you? Who is wise among you? What is wisdom? These are the big questions of life, difficult to answer questions, at least difficult in the sense that they make us think a little bit differently or more deeply about our world and our place in it. But this morning's question, at first glance, is, you know, kind of a, a peculiar one, like I said, but it's not such a hard question to answer, is it? Can you run with the horses? I mean, this is a question that the engineers and the scientists among us can answer. The, the left-brainers, if you will, not some subjective question. This is observable. We know the answer to this question, don't we? Can you compete with the horses? We actually have data to, to, to answer the question, in fact. I did a little bit of a, a rabbit trail research this week, and I discovered that it, some different speeds for humans and horses. Did you know that if you run a 100-meter dash, which is a pretty good speed, speed, in 11 seconds, you are running at roughly 20 miles per hour? The, the fastest man in the world, arguably, is Usain Bolt, and he can run in 9.78 seconds, which translates to 27.8 miles per hour. Smoking fast. 
but that's only for 100 meters. So how, what about a runner that can run for like miles on end? You know, an average runner, a, a really good pace for an average runner for a mile is about a seven and a half minute mile, at least for commoners like me, not like Brian Buchanan who can run in like six minute miles, or uh, Megan Postma or Carson Cole, those people are fast. But for the commoners like me, uh, for us, uh, a, a really fast mile is about uh, seven and a half minutes. And that equals about eight miles per hour. And if you go with a really fast runner, like you know the first runner to ever run a four-minute mile, Roger Bannister, he ran that in under four minutes, which translates to about 15 miles per hour. So you can sprint at you know 20-ish miles per hour. You can run at 10-ish miles per hour. But walking, you know, if you can't run forever, you can walk for a really long time. And how fast do we walk? We walk about. 20 minutes per mile, right, roughly, and that translates to about three miles per hour. So a human can sprint, run, and walk about that fast. How about horses? I didn't realize that there was such a difference between how fast horses can run. There are different speeds for horses, and uh, one of the fastest horses is not the horse that you see on the Kentucky Derby, a thoroughbred that's in the horses. I'm not a equestrian person, please forgive me if you are. Uh, but the, the thoroughbreds can run at around like 30 miles per hour. Secretariat, you know the famous movie about the, the horse that can run really fast? He was one of the fastest derby runners. He ran it in 38 miles per hour. But those don't even, those pale in comparison to the American quarter horse. Supposedly, they can run 55 miles per hour on a 400-yard track. But that's only 400 yards. How fast can a horse run for, like, miles on end? Well, a horse can run uh, on average or canter on average for 1 to 5 miles at about 10 to 17 miles per hour. And if you want them to walk for a really long time, for days on end, how fast can they walk? They can walk about 4.3 miles per hour. So comparing the two, humans versus horses, I have a slide for this one too. Who's faster? Horses, duh, they have four legs. They're like made of muscle. They're super fast. However, the male ego is not to be messed with. And so for centuries, literally, we have been competing trying to beat horses. In fact, Jesse Owens was a sprinter and he alleged that he could beat a horse in a 100-yard dash. And the only reason that he did is because when the gun shot off to start the race, like you do in a track meet, 100, the horse was so startled it jumped up and that Jesse Owens made it halfway down the track before the horse almost caught him at the very end. Not only that, but in 1880 was the first horse versus man race. Now, the real, the real trick is that horses and men, uh, and women probably, uh, can race one another, and distance seems to be better for humans than the horses. And so, in 1880, someone cooked up this idea to have a, a horse versus human race. You can see the, the flyer way on the left-hand side. In Chicago, in September, for six and a half days a week, basically, to see who could get the most miles in a week. Guess who won? Well, the horses, uh, one of them actually, there was 15 men and five horses. One horse died. Multiple men passed out and left the race. In fact, some of the, the winning runner was actually bleeding. His nose was bleeding because he was so dehydrated from the grueling heat. But after six and a half days, I know that you're on the edge of your seats to figure this out. But Michael Brine, a human, ran 578 miles in six and a half days. And he actually beat the winning horse, Betsy Baker, who ran 563 miles. 
crazy amount of miles. And, and, and since then, we've had a number of horse versus man marathons. And in fact, literally two weeks ago, this is hot off the press, Ricky Lightfoot, there's an annual marathon that's only 22 miles because, you know, people in Wales do it differently. Uh, there's a race in every year in, in Wales between humans and horses, and Ricky Lightfoot became the third ever human being to beat a horse in a 22-mile marathon. So practically speaking, can you compete with the horses? That was a way, way too long of an introduction, a way of saying... Not really. Maybe if you cooked up the right race in which you have a significant uh, uh, advantage, humans can compete with horses. But horses are faster than humans. We'll never compete. So why? Why did God ask Jeremiah if he can compete with horses? Why ask him about doing something that is nearly impossible? Before we consider that question, it's helpful to consider a little bit of Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah lived in some of the most grueling times in Judah's history with unstable leadership and unfaithful people. He was born into arguably one of the most terrible times in Judah's history with, under the reign of King Manasseh. This king persecuted prophets. He mandated the worship of foreign gods, and he even participated in child sacrifices. He was the worst of worst kings in Judah's history, and his ruthless reign and Jeremiah's birth under his ruthless reign would foreshadow, in many ways, the rest of Jeremiah's life. Throughout his life, Jeremiah was a prophet who called the people to repentance. He prophesied judgment to both the people of God and Judah, but also judgment for other nations. And while at times he emboldened the faithful, he often other times condemned them for their idolatry. And Judah as a nation was in a perilous time as well, waffling between allegiances for, uh, with Egypt and with Babylon during a cosmic world war going on during that time which culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah, for that matter, by the Babylonian Empire, sending the people of God into exile in 587 B.C. All that to say, it was a really, really tough time for Jeremiah, and him being a prophet, a man of faith and allegiance to God, was a lonely life. He was a man despised by his neighbors, a man despised by the politicians in Jerusalem, by the the so-called people of God and by the patriots of Judah. Jeremiah's obedience to God cost him. It cost him dearly, both relationally and in the quality of his life. And in the end, his faithfulness to God cost him his very life, living in exile in G Egypt. And so what we read in the 12th chapter of the book of Jeremiah is just a glimpse, a sliver, an instance of Jeremiah's wrestling with this call from God to be faithful, to be a prophet during a really difficult time. Interestingly, though, we note that he begins this little conversation with God with an affirmation. God, you are righteous he says in verse 1. Or as one translation says, God, you're going to win if I make a claim against you, yet I'm going to present a charge anyway. And what was Jeremiah's claim? Why do the evil people win? 
Why do they get rich and successful? They plant trees and bear abundant fruits. Yet, as you know, I do not experience the same. I'm trying to be faithful here, God. I'm trying to do the right thing, and I don't experience prosperity like they do. Take out the evil ones. You're the only one who can. Jeremiah's lament, I would argue, is a familiar one to us, isn't it, at times? How come the bad ones win all the time? How come they seem to have it so good while I'm trying to be faithful and struggling every single day? I've tried to be faithful, God, and yet it happens. God's response is kind of interesting, isn't it? It's seemingly maybe a little bit insensitive almost. If you're trying to compete with those folks and you're feeling discouraged and you're weary and you're at your wit's end, how will it be competing with horses, God says? You think this is bad, just wait. It's gonna get worse is what it seems to be, God seems to be saying. God doesn't answer Jeremiah's questions about the prosperity of the wicked. He doesn't make it all better. He invites, dare I say, even demands from Jeremiah a radical obedience in the face of his trials. Which I guess is kind of congruent with our lives at times too, isn't it? We don't get a lot of easy answers. No easy ways out of cancer for us. No shortcuts to the griefs we have experienced. No clear paths for redeeming a broken relationship. Rather, an invitation. An invitation to run with the horses, to stay true to the God that has placed a call on our lives, even when it gets tough, even when it seems, dare I say, impossible. God is calling Jeremiah to persevere to remain faithful to the call God has placed on his heart, even when times are tough. How might we remain faithful when things get tough in our lives? I think this exchange between Jeremiah and God give us three clues as to how we might compete with the horses in our lives, how we might race with the impossibilities that we face on a daily basis. The first clue that we discover to compete with the horses in our lives is to remember who the the judge of the race is. Jeremiah's lament is to God because he knows that God is righteous. Interestingly, he asks God, though, to be the one who exercises judgment on the wicked. He says, you, O God, lead them like sheep to the slaughter. Yes, Jeremiah warned the people around him. Yes, he prophesied destruction that results from disobedience, but he ultimately left the judgment of those people in the hands of God. Old Testament commentator Andrew Dearman said it even better than I could. Jeremiah seeks the exercise of God's righteousness, not the fulfillment of his wish list for vengeance. Jeremiah has no vendetta against his opponents, and he does not seek to judge them himself. He simply holds their activities in persecuting God's prophet before the judgment seat of God. In the midst of his frustration, Jeremiah rightfully puts the judgment of others into God's hands rather than into his own heart. What does it look like 
for us to offer our judgment of others and put them in the hands of God? How do we release our frustrations and vengeances and not embody them in actions towards others? What, what if instead of talking about our judgments of others with people that think like us, rather than doing that, we presented them to God? This idea or these questions have been a difficult spiritual practice for me this week. As you are aware, the Supreme Court made a significant ruling last Friday. It's caused for many of us to have some pretty strong emotional reactions that are not all uniform. There are people in this room with varying responses to this ruling. Some are overfilled with joy and gratefulness. Others are saddened and frustrated. And it's got me wondering, especially in light of this significant action that happened outside of my control, what if my response to the judgments from that ruling is not one of casting stones, but of faithful listening? How do I release my judgments about what I think might be best to God and admit that I might not know what's best for us or for our country? I think the first clue we find in Jeremiah chapter 12 to compete with the horses, to compete with the impossibilities in our life is to remember that God is the judge and he is the one that can hold our judgments for us when we bring them to, before him. The second clue to competing with the horses is to remember the futility of the competition. Jeremiah's lament is that he can't compete with the people of his time. He can't keep up with their prosperity. He doesn't have the same influence as them. He's not recognized as, as famous or as powerful as they are. God's response might be a clue to Jeremiah and to us that he's competing with the wrong people. He's playing in the wrong game. It's tempting for us to play that game too, isn't it? To think of our lives as a race against those around us. I remember in high school re realizing that I would not be probably the best at anything. Uh, there's always going to be someone that's going to be faster than me, smarter, funnier, richer, more popular, more athletic than I was. And I don't say that in a self, didn't realize that in a self-deprecating way. It was actually the first step towards freedom. You don't have to win the race. You don't have to be the best. Yes, do your best, try to do your best, pursue excellence, but don't measure your success by the success of those around you. Yet, how easy is it for me today to still fall into the trap, to race against those influencers in my life? How easy is it to secretly measure my success by the success of others? I need to be reminded that I'm not running in a race against those around me. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Run with the Horses, The Quest for the Life at Its Best, which is really a commentary on Jeremiah, his book opens with kind of a provocative uh, quote, and this is what it says. The puzzle is why so many people live so badly. Not so wickedly, but so inanely. Not so cruelly, but so stupidly. There is little to admire and less to imitate in the people who are prominent in our culture. Yes, we have celebrities, but not saints. Famous entertainers amuse a nation of bored insomniacs. Infamous criminals act out their aggressions of timid conformists. 
Petulant and spoiled athletes play games vicariously for lazy and apathetic spectators. People, aimless and bored, amuse themselves with trivia and trash. Neither the adventure of goodness nor the pursuit of righteousness gets headlines. I want to play in that game. The adventure of goodness and the pursuit of righteousness. So who are you running the race of life against? Who's your competition? Have you got stuck playing the wrong game with me? I think the second clue to running with the horses is to remember the futility of the world, worldly competition, and consider which game you want to be playing. Our last clue to competing with the horses is to remember who has run the impossible race before. Horse races, those horse races that I showed you between man and horse, did you know that all of the ones that the humans won have been because of some, mm, let's say, advantage that was given to the humans? The horse race that's happening every year in Wales was adjusted to become extremely steep and difficult for horses to navigate down so that humans could get a leg up going up and down and through the water. And in fact, most of the races are done during the summer when the temperatures are at their peak because horses can't uh, uh, cool down as fast as humans. We have this unique ability to sweat and horses have to pant and they're all hairy. And so humans were given a significant advantage. Or another way of saying it is that resilience through adversity was what gave humans the leg up. It was actually the adversity that caused the humans to have a leg up on the horses. Our God knows a little thing or two about resilience through adversity, doesn't he? When life seems to be at its worst, God seems to find a way. When our backs are against the wall and we can't compete the with the horses, God seems to lean in. God relentlessly pursues relationship with humans when they are at their weakest moments. In fact, when humanity was at its worst. God sent Jesus Christ into this world, who, through adversity on a cross, proved resilient. This is the same Christ that accompanies us when we face the horses' races in our lives. We are not alone. Christ has shown up and continues to show up when we face the impossible call of faithfulness. Becca and I recently watched a Netflix movie entitled uh, Hustle, if you haven't heard of it. It's a fictional story about the grit and the determination that's necessary to play in the NBA. The primary characters in this movie are Adam Sandler, who is uh, affectionately known as Stanley Sugarman on the right there, and Bo Cruz, who is a street basketball player in Spain. Stanley Sugarman goes and discovers him playing in boots on a side court one day in Spain and says, you got some talent. You should come and play in the NBA. And so Stanley puts a lot on the line so that Bo can come and try out in the NBA. And after one specific tryout in which uh, Bo did not do well and he was uh, not admitted onto the team, Stanley had a little pep talk with Bo. This is what Stanley said to Bo in this scene. Do you love this game? I mean, do you love it with your whole heart? Because if you don't, let's not even bother. Let's not even open that door to trying out and trying to make the NBA. They're just gonna slam it right back in your face. 
I love this game. I live this game. And there's a thousand other guys waiting in the wings who are obsessed with this game. Obsession is going to beat talent every time. You got all the talent in the world, kid, but are you obsessed? Is this all you ever think about? After some choice words and silence, Stanley again asks him, do you love this game? Bo says, yeah, yeah, I love this game. Is there a newborn kitten tea party happening right here? I ask, do you love this game? Do you want to play in the NBA, Bo? Yes, I want it, Bo says. Stanley knew what it took. He knew the pain and discipline because he had done it. He had tried out for the NBA, and he knows the grueling path of faithfulness before him. And he yearns for Bo to have the same commitment, to have the same love and obsession for the game that he had. And Stan is willing to work with him, to go with him and wake up early and train and be disciplined so that he might make the NBA. And it's got me wondering, is this what God was inviting Jeremiah to do too? Is this what Jesus is inviting us to a radical love, a radical obsession, a radical faith and trust in him that he's got us and he can face, help us face the impossible possibilities in our life. It's a life that he knows. He's faced the impossibilities. He's entered into the muck of our existence and he, by the power of his spirit, will partner with us when we face the impossibilities of our lives too. My friends, if we want to run with the horses, if we want to compete with the impossible, if we want to remain faithful when it gets hard, Jeremiah reminds us that one, God is the judge of the race and his righteousness will win in the end. He will remind us of the futility of the competition. So play in the right game. And finally, he'll remind us, he reminds us to remember that God has already won the race and he will accompany us on the impossible task of competing with the horses. And he does that in really practical ways by feeding us here at his word and also feeding us here at this table. Because it is here at this table that we remember the perfect sacrifice that God made for us. That it is not up to our righteousness or our ability to to win the race, but God has already won the race in the person of Jesus Christ. We come to this table to remember him. We also come to this table to commune with the Holy, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who equips and empowers us to live a life of faithfulness. And we come to this table in hope believing that the one, the author and perfecter of our faith will someday bring us all into his heavenly kingdom. We come to this table in remembrance, in communion, and in hope. Would you pray with us? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful, so incredibly grateful for um, your initiative toward us, for the way that you sustain us, for the way that you grant us the capacity to endure in the race that we run Um, fill our hearts this morning, fill our minds this morning, and fill our bodies this morning with a reminder of the nourishment that is promised to us through this bread and through this cup. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. On the same night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. 
And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after a little while, he took the cup and he filled it. And he offered it to each of his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, and as often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. At Fellowship Church, we believe that all those who love God and are learning to follow Jesus are welcome at this table, for this is Christ's table. We will have three stations um, here in the front um, and a gluten-free station underneath the cross um, and a roving elder who can bring the elements to you if you would just simply raise your hand from your seat. Um, and we invite you to just savor this moment, savor the grace, um, and remember the race that you are called to run and take these elements as your nourishment, your fuel for that race. Um, come for all things are ready. I'd like to invite this. Oh, yeah.
Friends, what a gift it is to share together at the table of our Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to stand and let's sing together the doxology.
My friends, don't forget that there are refreshments in the atrium following the service. We'd love to join in fellowship with you. As you go out this week, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be